Let's just pray together for a few moments. Father, may your light dawn in our hearts and minds that we may seek your wisdom afresh this morning. Let your words dwell within us. Ignite them in our hearts by the gift of your spirit which lives within us. And may you bless Linda's words that they may help us to discover afresh your purpose for our lives. This we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Matthew. And uh, I think I'm on. Is that right? Does it sound okay at the back, Jeff? Everybody can hear okay. Good. Good. Well, it's good to be starting this new series just for this month on a passage from Matthew's Gospel, which in the Anglican tradition is the Gospel for this year. So we're continuing some of the passages that we looked at earlier in Matthew's Gospel. So that's the text. And as you, some of you will know, I have a particular interest in language and texts. That's my personal and professional interest. Um, and I'm particularly interested in how people use texts in different ways to do different things. But actually, this isn't necessarily a specialism just for me. It's an expertise that we can all have because we all recognize how texts differ from one another because they're written to achieve different ends. So here's an example of a text. What sort of text is this? A recipe. A recipe for what? Yeah, the most basic sort of recipe that uh, you could get. But this is Delia's and Jamie Oliver's advice combined. So that's got to be a good way to do it. What about this one? What sort of text is this? Somebody said it over here. It's a limerick. How do you know it's a limerick? The way it scans. Let's scan it together. There was a young lady from Niger who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They came back from the ride with the lady inside and the smile on the face of the tiger. Okay. We know that's a limerick. We have no difficulty recognizing that the recipe text looks and reads differently from the limerick text. Each text deliberately uses language in a different way, not just the words that it chooses to use or the way the sentences are put together, but even the layout on the page and the way the text sounds, if you read it aloud, is different. Here's another limerick, and this one explains the design of limericks for us. Writing a limerick's absurd, line one and line five rhyme in word, and just as you've reckoned they rhyme with the second, the fourth line must rhyme with the third. That's the pattern of a limerick. We know that. So you've got text expertise. Okay, so why is she talking about recipes and limericks? Aren't we supposed to be looking at texts from the Bible this morning? Well, of course we are. But it's worth reminding ourselves that the Bible actually contains many different types of texts. Different texts were written at different times by different writers for different purposes. The Bible contains historical records, theological sermons, legal documents, poems, prayers, songs, biographies, allegorical stories, personal letters, and lots more. So the Bible gives us a whole library of different types of text, and that's part of its great richness. But here's the problem. 
We sometimes read what's written between the covers of the Bible as if it's all the same sort of text. And we forget how important it is to understand when the text was written, why it was written, what sort of text it is, and so on and so forth. And as a result, we don't always do justice to the way we read and understand what these texts communicate to us of God's revelation. So, as we come to look at this section of Matthew's Gospel, which everybody knows, or many people know as the Beatitudes, what does that mean? Perhaps it's helpful for us to understand a little bit more about what sort of text this is in Matthew and how it would have been heard and understood by those who heard it. And they would have heard it, not read it, as we do. So, have a look at the passage from Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. It would be helpful if you have your Bibles open at page 916. And this morning we're going to set the scene for the rest of July when we'll be looking closely at particular groups of verses within the Beatitudes. But this morning what I really would like us to do is look at two specific things. Firstly, the context in which the Beatitudes were delivered. And secondly, the nature of the Beatitudes themselves. We'll come back to what Beatitudes mean a little later. Let's note, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, that the Beatitudes record words spoken by Jesus himself. These are Jesus' words recorded by the Gospel writer. And it's also important to note that he spoke these to his disciples. That's what the Gospel writer is telling us. Not to the crowds in general. This was clearly a teaching opportunity for his disciples, for those who were committed to following him. On this occasion, Jesus' words were not intended for the large crowds who flocked to hear him because they liked or didn't like what he said, because he told a good story, because he did miracles, healing people and feeding people, and therefore maybe was a bit of a celebrity or an entertainer for some people at that time. These verses in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, together with the rest of chapters 5, 6, and 7, cast your eye over the subheadings if you have your Bibles open. These are serious teaching for people who are serious about following Jesus. Serious teaching for people who are serious about being a follower of Jesus. And if we are serious disciples of Jesus ourselves, then surely we should be taking seriously Jesus' words in this passage and in the rest of chapters 5, 6, and 7. So we know that this was a discipleship training opportunity because in verse 2 we read, the gospel writer tells us that his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. No doubt there. But there's another hint on this point because we read that Jesus sat down to do his teaching, which was the standard practice in Jesus' day for teachers or rabbis. So Jesus followed the convention of being seated as the teacher 
with his disciples at his feet, listening intently to all he wanted them to learn. I have to tell you as a university lecturer, that does not happen today. I do not have masters and PhD students sitting at my feet, would that I did. So that was the contemporary way of teaching. But thirdly, let's notice in this passage that such in-depth teaching of his followers was never going to happen amidst the busyness and endless demands of their daily ministry. It required a different time and a different place. It meant leaving the crowds behind. And for this reason, the gospel writer tells us that Jesus went up on a mountainside where his disciples had to seek him out so that they would have a space to gather together and focus. And maybe that's another lesson for us as Jesus' disciples. When, where, and how does each one of us follow Jesus up a metaphorical mountainside so that we can sit at his feet and allow him to teach us? Perhaps it happens when we're preparing the Sunday reflections or the next session for our house group or a young church session. It can happen through a regular time of study and prayer in our homes, in a quiet space, or through going away for a quiet day or a few days of retreat. It can happen here on a Sunday morning when we gather apart from the world to listen to Jesus' words. But the bottom line is, If we fail to leave the crowds behind, and if we fail to make the effort to follow Jesus up the mountainside, then we're going to miss out on the chance to sit at his feet, to be taught by him, and to become more like him. There's one further element to these two verses that I think we should be aware of. Take a look at our other Bible reading today from Exodus Chapter 19 is on page 73 to 4. And some of you may recognize that this was one of the passages that we looked at earlier this year during our season exploring Exodus. Here we see Moses going up the mountain to receive directly from God the promise and the law for God's people. So the writer of Matthew's gospel is being very clever here. When he describes Jesus as going up the mountain, he's making a powerful connection between Jesus and Moses and his Jewish readers for whom we believe this gospel was largely written would have recognized this, just as you recognize the limerick. On the one hand, we have the person of Moses who saved and led God's people out of slavery, teaching them what it means to be citizens of a new kingdom. And on the other hand, we have Jesus, the ultimate saviour, the ultimate leader, the ultimate teacher of God's people. So the parallel in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, between Jesus and Moses would not have been lost on the audience for whom Matthew's gospel was primarily written, even though we might not see it today, so many thousands of years on. And in this opening passage of chapter 5, we see the gospel writer setting the scene 
for Jesus to recast and represent the ancient Jewish law as Moses had received and communicated it on the Mount of Sinai. What we often call today the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6 and 7. Jesus is very clear about the Mosaic law. He says, I didn't come to abolish it elsewhere in the Gospels. But, and this is my word, but to reinterpret it in new ways for a new era. So I think in chapters 5, 6 and 7 of Matthew's Gospel, I'd suggest we see Jesus using a fresh, maybe we could call it a more faithful and contemporary translation of God's law. So he can communicate what God's kingdom is really all about to his disciples. Okay, so we've looked at the background context for the Beatitudes. So let's look now briefly at the nature of the set of verses which make up the Beatitudes in verses 3 to 12. And if you look at page 916, you can immediately see that the format of verses 3 to 12 is a bit unusual. There's a pattern that's emerging, a bit like the pattern that we saw in the limerick earlier. We can immediately see there are several pairs of lines. The first line begins with the phrase, blessed are. That's followed by a word or a phrase that describes a particular group of people the poor in spirit or those who mourn. It ends with a comma, which suggests that it's linked to the line that's coming next. That line begins with the word for, suggesting, again, a link with the the, uh, words that have gone before. And then there's a phrase that describes an action or a state, something like, theirs is the kingdom, or they will be comforted. And we can see this two-line pattern is repeated nine times. And that suggests that it was a standard or established way of saying or writing things in Jesus' day. A way of saying or writing something that would be immediately recognized by those who heard or read it, just as we immediately recognized the recipe and the limerick. And it's true. It was. There was even a name for this type of text. Just as today we give the name limerick to a particular type of text pattern we're familiar with. The Beatitudes adopt a common literary format known as a macarism or macarisms. Sounds a bit like um, in the night garden for those of you who are familiar with it. But anyway... It comes from the Greek word makarios, which means blessed. So that's the Greek word for blessed. But what's the Latin word for blessed? Any classicists here? Beatus. Beatus. Blessed. Beatitude. You see the connection. So makarisms were a familiar text type in not just Hebrew, but Egyptian and Greek literature. And it was typically used in worship and in teaching. Maybe because it made it easier for people to recognize the formula or the pattern, and perhaps because it helped them to remember it. 
So when Jesus used the Beatitudes, or when the Gospel writer fashioned Jesus' teaching into this format and recorded it in this way, this was using an established teaching technique with his disciples, something they would probably recognize from their own experience of worship in the synagogue. And you can find lots of other examples of Macarisms in the Bible. So let's have a look at a few together. You should have, some of you, Bible with a slip of paper in. Yeah? And if you've thrown it away, shame on you. (laughs) And on your slip of paper, you should have one of these references. And I've been very kind of giving you the page number as well. So you've got three minutes to look up whatever's on your slip of paper and find the macarism while I get a drink of water. So who's found Psalm 41? Sue, read it for us, please. Nice and clear. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to do it again because I switched it off by mistake. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. Thank you. Who had Psalm 106? Mark. Nice and clear. Blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. Thank you. Who had Proverbs 8, 34? Andy. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. That's a reference to wisdom. Who had Ecclesiastes 10.17? Gary, I really like this one. I really like this one. Listen carefully to this one. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at their proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. (laughs) Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at the proper time, not for strength or drunkenness. Romans 14, 22. Anybody have that one? Sandra. Blessed are those who do not condemn themselves, but by, the, by what they approve. Yeah, good. And the last one is from Revelation 19. Anybody have that one? Yeah. There we go. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Thank you. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So you can see, Old Testament, New Testament, Macarisms, an important way of communicating God's truth, essential kingdom values. So what were all these blessed are statements intended to communicate and why did Jesus particularly focus on the ones we have in the Matthew passage? Well, we're going to be looking over the coming weeks 
at some of the specifics Sunday by Sunday. So I'm not going to steal the thunder of those people who will be looking at particular verses or groups of verses over the weeks to come. But maybe as a general principle, we could start by thinking about what the Beatitudes are not. What they are not. Some people suggest that Jesus was passing on an ethical code, a set of principles or rules for living. But that interpretation doesn't really ring true. It doesn't do them justice, and it risks being misleading. Remember that Jesus was not giving this wisdom to the whole world. He was teaching his own disciples here. He wasn't giving the whole world a set of behavioral rules to live by so that peace and harmony would reign. Okay, so if it's not an ethical code, what is it, this set of macarisms? Do the Beatitudes speak of the reward of a better life in the future as long as you live a virtuous life in the present? Or are they supposed to comfort those who are struggling in the here and now, promising a change of fortune in the future or even in a future life in heaven? It's worth noting that some Bible translations of the Beatitudes adopt the phrase, happy are. But how can it make sense to speak of those who mourn or who suffer persecution as being virtuous? How can bereavement or persecution be a cause for happiness or celebration? That seems to me almost an insult to those who are in such circumstances. And why would peacemakers need some sort of change of fortune. What's the relevance there? So none of these interpretations really make sense, and they're certainly not consistent with other parts of Jesus' teaching. So if we have a sense of what they are not, can we have a sense of what they are? Well, for me, the true thrust, of course, of the Beatitudes is less with what we do and how we feel and far more with how we are and with our attitudes to God and to others. So perhaps it makes sense to think of the Beatitudes, as some people talk about them, as the B-attitudes. What sort of people are we? What is our character individually and together as the body of Christ? And what does that mean in the here and now for our lived experience in the everyday world, as well as in the now-but-not-yet future that is to come. The great New Testament scholar Tom Wright is equally unhappy with the use of the word happy in translations of the Beatitudes, and he suggests something very different. Listen to what he says, and this is based on his translation of the Greek. Wonderful news for the poor in spirit. Wonderful news for the meek. Wonderful news for those who mourn. Wonderful news for the peacemakers, and so on and so forth. So this is not Jesus saying in the Beatitudes, if you could just try a little bit harder... To live according to these principles, 
then you will receive God's blessings. He's not saying that. This is not Jesus giving good advice. This is Jesus announcing good news. Wonderful news, to use Tom Wright's phrase. This is proclamation. Just as the prophet Isaiah promised in the passage Jesus, that Jesus read in the synagogue that we heard about last week. This is Jesus saying that if our hearts and minds are oriented towards God as our Father and towards his kingdom values, then we will experience blessing in the here and now, whatever our circumstances. In times of bereavement, in times of persecution, when we think we have no resources. Isn't that good news? You don't sound convinced. In the Beatitudes, Jesus introduces his disciples to a radical new perspective, an upside-down way of seeing the world that no longer sees good news as consisting of the usual human ambitions of success or wealth or long life or celebrity status and so on. And in the end, I really can't put it better than Tom Wright, who says the following... Follow me, Jesus said to the first disciples, because in Jesus the living God was doing a new thing. And this list of wonderful news is part of his invitation, part of his summons, part of his way of saying that God is at work in a fresh way and that this is what it looks like. God is acting in and through Jesus to turn the world upside down, to turn Israel upside down, to pour out lavish blessings on all who now turn to him and accept the new thing he is doing. Wonderful news indeed. Is it for you? Is it for us? Is it for Camborne? I pray it is. Amen.